The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning, Doxa Church. Today, our reading comes from Luke 13, 22 through 30, and Luke 14, 25 through 33. You can read along on the screens or in the Bibles under your seats. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out, and people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple." This has been God's word. So we're looking at the life of Jesus from the gospel of Luke. And uh, what we're seeing is one of the least likely stories in history, if not the least likely story in history. Have you ever thought about, I don't know if you've been a believer for very long, you've been around church very long, have you ever thought about like the claims of Christianity? Like it's a pretty crazy claim that we claim that this Jewish peasant who was a carpenter by trade, a son of a carpenter, a son of Jewish peasants in a Hobunk town, a Hobunk village, in a Hobunk area of the Roman Empire, at age 30 began to preach to people. And after he started to preach to people, then miracles began to happen at his hand. Uh, the lame were able to walk, the blind saw, even people who were dead were raised back to life again. Amazing miracles happened. That, that his teachings astounded this uneducated peasant carpenter. His teachings astounded the most educated men of his day. Yet, yet... Fast forward down the, you guys kind of already know, I don't feel like I'm cheating the end of the story of Luke, yet his own, those same religious leaders would turn him over to be killed uh, just a few years into his ministry, and that his followers would not only follow him as leader, but they would move to worshiping him as God himself. Now, some of you guys, you're, you've been around Doxa for a while, and uh, apparently you follow Dale and I and the other leaders of Doxa as leaders, but no one here knows Dale 
Dale, particularly Dale or myself very well, is going to one day turn around and worship us as God. Like you know, like Dale, neither Dale nor I nor God, but yet these followers worshipped him as God and didn't just worship as God, but began to worship him as God after his death. As some of them said, as all of them said, hey, not only did he die at the hands of the Jewish authorities and Roman authorities, but he rose again on the third day after he was killed. Have you ever thought about the claims of Christianity? They're kind of crazy if you think about it. And not only after his death did his followers worship him as God, but they grew exponentially across the world. And they grew in a almost unlikely way it began with the poor and the weak and the slaves of the Roman Empire it exerted influence across the entire Roman Empire not initially through the leaders and the powerful and the rich but the poor and the lowly and the destitute against all odds this new religion began spreading or ended up spreading across all the world you ever thought about the claims of Christianity? Jesus stands unique out of all the great men and women in history. Jesus stands unique among them all. There's no one like him. In him, we see the clash of two things that we consider great. In American society, we consider power great. Someone who's able to exert great power or influence in their arena. We consider them great. And Jesus had great power. Healings. He spoke with authority. He, people marveled whenever he spoke. said, this man speaks as someone who has authority as a leader, even though he was just a peasant carpenter. Signs followed him as he did. He turned water into wine. He, he fed probably 10 to 15,000 people out of a young boy's lunch, five loaves, five little loaves, and two fish. And yet we also see not only great power exhibited, but we see incredible humility exhibited. Now, in America, we don't tend to celebrate those who are humble and who serve, but if we just say, hey, name some great people in recent history across the world, most of our list, if we're named 10 to 20 people, is going to include people like Mother Teresa who serve people selflessly, selflessly. We see Jesus exhibit not only great power, but great humility. He had compassion among those who were lowly. He exhibited forgiveness to people who were wrong. He exhibited sacrificial love to people. And it's that combination of power and humility in one that makes Jesus so incredibly unique and causes him to stand out from every other leader. Much less the claim that he died and rose again and is seated at the right hand of his heavenly father right now. But if Jesus stands unique among all the great people in history, doesn't that make sense? Because if the claims of Christianity are true, if Jesus was the son of God, the creator of heaven and earth, the rightful king who is returning to a rebellious earth, to a rebellious people, if he was the creator of heaven and earth and yet was returning to the earth that had broken away from him and was going their own direction, wouldn't there be a clash of, not just cultures, but a clash of natures? 
If the rightful king is returning to a rebellious people, which is what Christianity claims that Jesus was and we are, then wouldn't our, not only cultures clash, but our natures clash? Wouldn't it feel like an alien had come to earth who spoke and thought and saw things differently than we speak or think or see? Jesus came to show us what things are supposed to be like. Jesus came to show us what life looks like under his rule, the rightful king, the rule of the rightful king. Jesus came to show us a way out of our broken way of seeing things and our broken ways of doing things. Every one of us in this room, no matter what your background is like, no matter how long you've been a Christian or how long you've been around church, no matter how great your family was or how terrible your family was, every single one of us in this room have broken ways of seeing things, broken ways of doing things. Jesus came to show us how we would look under his rule and his reign. In this section of Luke, he started his journey towards Jerusalem where he's going to eventually be crucified and buried. He knows that. He knows that's where he's going. And along the way, as he's meeting with people and preaching and uh, answering people's questions, he's describing what the kingdom of God looks like. He's describing what it means to be a disciple or a follower or someone who is under the rule and reign of the king. There's so much. So our text is from Luke 13, 10 through 14, 35. That is a long section anyway. There's more than even that Rebecca read for us. There is a lot here. Please take the time to read it and study it. Ask questions, talk about it in your community groups, grab somebody for coffee or, or lunch and talk about it. There is a lot here that we can't even touch. Even the sections that we're going to be covering this morning, I cannot cover everything that's there. Please take the time to do that. But we're going to look at three things that Jesus lays out for those of us who would follow him. Those of us who would follow him and come under the rule and reign of Jesus. He describes for us a little bit the kingdom itself. What does the kingdom look like? What is it about? Secondly, the door into the kingdom. And thirdly, the cost of entering the kingdom. The kingdom, the door, and the cost. The kingdom, the door into that kingdom, and the cost of entering the kingdom. First of all, the kingdom itself. What is the kingdom of God? When we talk, if you've been around church, you've heard that term before, and maybe you wonder, like, I don't even know what he's talking about whenever he says that term. The kingdom of God is simply life under the rule of Jesus. The kingdom of God is life under the rule of Jesus. It's what does life look like when Jesus is king and his subjects or his followers or his disciples live like he actually is their personal king, their personal Lord. And he shares with us a little bit here about the nature of the kingdom. If you have your Bible, you can look at chapter 13 of Luke, verse 18 and 19. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air nest 
in its branches. He, the, uh, a, mustard, a mustard seed, it actually didn't grow into what we would call actual tree. It would be a, a very large bush, a very large bush that at, under the right conditions could grow into almost the size of a tree, but the seed was minuscule. It was very tiny. Uh, so as you know, I grew up in the country between Conway and Georgetown out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, I was kind of a I never quite fit in to my family and my upbringing and growing up, but my granddaddy would make us go out there and uh, till or farm his garden. His garden, it was actually like kind of what some people would call a farm. It was a large field, and we would have to go out there and plant, and we have to hoe to keep the weeds away and do all kinds of stuff and harvest it. It was terrible because he'd come in the, the summer when you're trying to sleep late as a student, and he'd wake you up and say, all right, we're going to go out and go to the garden now. And I'm like, who? I didn't not volunteer for this. He never asked if I volunteered. I was just volunteered by being his grandson, I guess. And he would take us out there. And, and you plant these little seeds and the seed grows up into a, a, to a plant. But it always amazed me that he had these two giant oak trees in his front yard. And he would tell us how he planted those oak trees. And an oak tree comes from a little acorn. And yet it grows into this huge thing. A mustard seed was about the smallest seed they had at the time. And he said, that mustard seed, the seed that you could fall like, like when Megan and I got married, uh, you know, they, because uh, they, instead of throwing rice or bubbles or whatever it is, sparklers that you guys do now and you're leaving, they threw bird seed on us. And they, and as we're getting in our car, my little Saturn, which I love that little Saturn, as I was getting in that Saturn, our friends took like big piles of bird seed and just threw it into the car after us. Until I sold that car after Megan wrecked it. After I sold the car, I was still finding little bits of bird seed in that car. A little bit of seed that falls down and you can't find it anymore. That little seed you planted under the right conditions, it grows unseen. You first put it on the ground. You don't see what's happening, where it's going, what's going on. And then all of a sudden you see a little sprout. If you leave it alone, it has the right mix of sun and moisture. If you leave it alone and it's under the right conditions, it grows and grows and grows. And at first it's very tender. It can easily be knocked over. But if it continues to grow and grow and grow, all of a sudden it becomes a tree that has deep roots it cannot be moved. The kingdom of God is like that and that it, it expands. It starts minuscule. It started with this peasant carpenter in the middle of nowhere preaching. And yet unseen, it grew and grew and grew until it exerted influence across the whole Roman Empire. And it has continued to do that across the world and across time since Jesus himself. Someone travels to a place and they preach the gospel the first time and nobody seems to respond. They preach the gospel again and nobody seems to respond. They may preach for years and years and years and the gospel seed is planted and planted and watered and watered and all of a sudden you see a little sprout come up and the next thing you know over time it grows and more and more people have come under the rule and reign of Jesus and they experience new life in him and all of a sudden there's a tree that exists where there was none before. It starts minuscule and it grows large and it reaches many, but what it, which is what he means when he says the birds of the air made nests and it comes to the size and is able to support life itself. It, the nature of the kingdom, it expands. And then secondly, we see that it transforms. Look at verse 20 and 21 of chapter 13. And again, he said to them, so what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour, which would be a lot of flour at the time until it was all leavened. 
Uh, Leaven is interesting in that, that, that that dough that you mix up does not contain in itself what it needs to rise and be a really nice, fluffy bread after you bake it. It has to rise. And what you have to do to make that flour and water and depending on what kind of dough you're making, eggs or salt or whatever it is that you're putting, you're putting in this mix until you introduce the yeast or the leavening agent from outside of the dough into it, it can never rise and become what it needs to become. The leaven comes from outside of itself. And then as you work it into the dough and you leave it alone, it works from the inside out to transform the very nature of the dough itself. It doesn't just affect the dough. It transforms the very nature of the dough as it spreads into all of it and affects every single part of the dough itself. The kingdom, the nature of the kingdom is that it begins small and it expands. It comes from outside like the leaven or the yeast and it works works from the inside out and it changes the very nature of the thing that's been implanted into. And some of you in here, you've experienced that yourself. Maybe you've been around church for a while, you heard the gospel for a while, but, but it didn't really have any sort of effect in you. We've had Docs at 101 class and been interested to hear people's stories and man, I was around church, I was around church, it didn't really have any effect until one day something happened in your life. Maybe you're in the midst of a crisis or maybe you're sitting in a service like this or maybe somebody was sitting down from you across from a table at a coffee shop and they said, let me share with you something that is meaningful to me that has changed my life. And you heard it and it, all of a sudden, it, for some reason that day it clicked and something began to change deep inside you and it has changed is changing you and has changed you from the inside out not the outside in it's not outside pressure the people around you that are forcing you to change it is an inward pressure that is coming from deep within you where your life has changed the very nature your identity and your value has changed at your very core the nature of the kingdom is that it expands and it then it transforms Two other things he tells us about the, the, the nature of the kingdom, rather the quality of the kingdom. We don't have time to go over to it deeply, but in verses 7 through 14 of chapter 14, tells the parable of the wedding feast. And he says that, hey, whenever you come into a wedding feast, don't take the, the place of honor that was a particular place the, to the right and then to the left of the person who was the host of the, of the banquet or the, or the feast. He says, go sit lower and then be pulled up afterwards. The quality of the kingdom is that those who are in the kingdom, it's marked by humility. And then he tells a story in, uh, starting in verse 12 of chapter 14, down through verse 24 about a great banquet that's, that's thrown. And a man gave a great banquet and he invited many people. And then when he came back to remind them it's time to come, nobody came. And so he went out into the streets and the lanes in verse 21 to go quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you've commanded has been done and there still is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house would be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. This, the underlying uh, cool part of this story, even though people get locked out of the banquet, is that to be a part of the kingdom of God is marked by celebration. 
To be a part of the kingdom of God is to, to be a part of the party that will go on forever. There is, uh, there is joy and pain mixed in this world, but in the, in the world to come, for those of us who are believers in Christ, it is marked by joy. It says that he will wipe every tear from our eyes. The kingdom expands, it transforms, it's marked by humility, and it's marked by celebration. It is some place that you want to be in the kingdom. There are people who have a wrong idea of Christianity, what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian means to not do a lot of things. To be a Christian means to grit your teeth and do the right thing. To be a Christian means to, to, to live a kind of life that you would think, hey, I don't want to live that kind of life. But Christians know the truth, that joy True and lasting and complete, never-ending joy is found there. And that's just the appetizer. The feast is coming when all sin is washed away and the whole new heaven and new earth is under the rule and reign of our Lord and our King, Jesus Christ. It's someplace you want to be. So if it is someplace you want to be, how do we get in there? How do you get into the kingdom Jesus describes, he talks about a door starting in verse 22 of chapter 13. He went on his way through towns and villages teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. It, it only makes sense that Jesus is talking about a door. Now, to you and I, as a modern Americans, we hear that and that we instantly recoil from that. Because we don't like the idea of there being any sort of exclusion. Any sort of sense like someone is somewhere and I can't get there. I should have the right to go and do whatever I want to do. We feel like, we feel like that, that's a little bit distasteful to us when we think about somebody being excluded from the kingdom of God. But doesn't it make sense? If we're talking about the kingdom of God, then there must be another kingdom. And if there's a kingdom of God and there's the other kingdom, the kingdom of, kingdom of darkness, doesn't it make sense that in order to come under the rule and reign of Jesus, you have to exit one kingdom and enter the other? You have to exit the rule and reign of sin and darkness and death and enter the rule and reign of Jesus. So what does this tell us about the kingdom, about the door to the kingdom? First of all, it tells us that we are all by nature outside of that kingdom. That's the need for a door. So your religious affiliation by birth, hey, I'm Catholic, I'm Presbyterian, I'm Christian, I'm whatever because my parents were. Or your uh, religious affiliation because of a church that you attend or are a member of. Your affiliation with feeling like, hey, I'm a good person because I do mostly good things or do more good things than I do bad things, that does not put you into the kingdom of God by nature. We are all outside of God's kingdom by nature. We all start in the same place. No matter whether you grew up in church or didn't, no matter by, by nature if you're a hell raiser or if you're a good kid, we are all by nature outside of the kingdom and have to gain entry through the door, that door, that narrow door in order to enter. It also tells us that we must gain entry only through the door. There's no other way to enter to the kingdom. There's no backdooring into the kingdom. There's no jumping over the wall. There's no other way except to go through the door. It tells us the door must be opened to us. 
We can't beat it down. And then it tells us that the, that door once opened, it must be entered. That's another story that comes from that parable, parable about the, the great banquet that was thrown. When the thrower of the banquet, is that what you say? Thrower of a banquet? The head of the party, the guy who was in charge, he sent out an invitation and said, hey, I'm throwing a party. I want you guys to come to my party. All right? And so this is a time that they didn't have watches and iPhones to remind them about what, like what day it was or what time it was. So they might forget like when it was time to come. So what you would have is you would have a second invitation. I need this because I forget things. And I need Megan to tell me, give me a second invitation or a second command to do something because I forgot the first. And there would be a second invitation that would come to say, the banquet is ready. It's time to come now. It's time to come tonight. Come to the party tonight. When the second invitation comes, the people who would say, said, hey, I'll be there to the first invitation, all of a sudden, they feel like they have a better thing going on. Like, you guys probably have a better thing. I'm not going to do that anymore. And so they stay home. And they give, a, they give excuses. So one guy says, hey, I bought a piece of land. I need to go check out the piece of land. Uh, I can't come to the party. Another guy said, hey, I bought some ox. And be like, say, hey, I bought a, bought a new car. I haven't seen it yet. I need to go check out the car. I can't come tonight. Another guy said, hey, I just got married. And so I'm busy, I can't come, I need to stay home. Being close is not enough. When the invitation comes, you have to heed the invitation and enter the door. There's no being close enough. There's no, I go to church enough, or I'm around other believers enough, or I, I'm a good person enough. No proximity gets you through the door. It's only actually entering through the door itself. It wasn't the good intentions of the people who, to the first invitation, said, hey, I'll come, but they, then they didn't actually come. It's the ones, and this is interesting, it's the ones who were in the highways Go out to the streets and the lanes of the city. That would be the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Wouldn't actually be the life of the party, of a normal party. He said, go bring them in. He said, we already have them. We've done that. And he said, he said then go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in. You know who would be out in the highways and the hedges? It would be the outcast. It would be the criminal. Be those who are ostracized from society or those who are hiding from society. He said, go out and bring them in. And those that came into the banquet, that, in, that were invited and actually entered through the door, are those who came into the kingdom. Proximity isn't enough. We must enter straight away and offer no excuses. Then Jesus tells us about the, the door. He says it's narrow. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Why is the door narrow? Well, the door is narrow in size because you can't bring your own kingdom into the king's kingdom. You can't bring your own possessions, your own way of doing things into the kingdom. It's a narrow way. Some of you, you can probably tell from looking at me, I haven't played a lot of sports, but some of you have played a lot of sports. I've seen movies. I've been around teams. But also, some of you, if you can't relate to sports, you've been a part of businesses or organizations. 
And if you really want to succeed in that team or that business or that organization, then you have to do it the way the team or the business or the organization says it's going to be done. There's cool stories about how, uh, I heard a story about Ben Bull where he's one of the players for Clemson and his coach, his defensive coach was hard on him the first year that he was there. And he, he quit, he didn't almost quit, he quit the team because he's like, I do not want any part of the way that you are coaching this team. And eventually he had to have a come to Jesus meeting with the head coach and his, uh, his defensive coach to say, hey, we're, we hear you, but if you're going to be a part of the team, you're going to do it the way that we say to do it. He said, yes, I'll be a part of that. And he was just able to be one of the leaders on the defense that led the team to the national championship. We know that to succeed in a particular team or a business or organization, you have to do it the way they say to do it. And that's what the kingdom of God is like. That's why the door is narrow. It's not say, hey, come in here. This is a big democracy. We want to hear how you think this should go. Jesus says, no, I love you, but I am the Lord. And you don't get to pick and choose the spots of how you obey me or how you follow me. It is my way when you enter my kingdom. I'm the king and you're not. And that comes as a punch in the gut, not just to modern Americans, but to every living human being because the human condition is to try to set up a kingdom where I rule and reign and the people around me who I can get to, to come under my rule and reign, that can get, get to come into the orbit around me, they do what I want them to do and life looks like I want it to look like. If you think about it, think about your strongest desires and motives right now in your life. Aren't they really about you trying to make your world that surrounds you your own kingdom where it makes sense to you and the people around you do what they want you to do what you want them to do. That's the human condition. That's the human history. The door is narrow in size. We cannot bring our own kingdom in, but it's also narrow in time. The story of the great banquet, he gave them the invitation. He reminded them to come. And then it was time for the banquet. He says, they are shut out. And for all of us, that is for us. There's a narrow door of time to follow Christ. We say tomorrow, we say I'll come later, well, I'll do it another time. But that time never comes. It's like some of us exercising and dieting and organizing the garage. I'm going to organize that garage one day. That day never comes because one day is always later, right? A lot of us were like that with Jesus. We kind of flirt with Jesus. We toy with him. We send him the late night, hey, what's up, Tex? We like it. We like to, when he bats his eyes at us and we do it back and forth, we like to flirt with Jesus. We never really commit all in. And to follow Jesus is like getting married. I'm not just saying yes to my wife. I'm saying no to every other woman. Not like I had to say no to every other. There was was not a lot of them lining up. But figuratively, I had to say no to every other woman. And if you're going to follow Jesus, 
You say no to every other Lord. That's you or anybody else. Which leads us to the cost of entering the kingdom. Jesus lays down in this section three great costs to enter the kingdom. And it's interesting because Jesus is not a salesman. Jesus would have been a terrible salesman. There were a couple of times where he declared something, a hard truth, that was so confusing or so hard that he actually lost his followers. There's one time where you can understand, he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot be my disciple. You have no part of me. Understandably, he lost all of his followers except his very committed disciples who were probably living with him. And he turned to them and said, hey, don't you want to go too? And they didn't even say, no, we don't want to go. Peter answers and says, where, where else would we go? I've thought about it, but where else would we go with you are the words of life. He urges them, in, urges us, urges the people he's talking to and urges us in this passage to consider the cost before we say we're going to follow him. Consider the cost, he says. Beginning in verse 25 of chapter 14, now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, again, he's not a great salesman, if anyone comes to me, he's not trying to, like a lot of churches, a lot of people try to sneak you in. Hey, following Jesus is easy, sign the card, walk up front, pray the prayer, boom, done, no problem, life is going to be great. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Now that's kind of confusing because this Jesus who says to hate your own father and mother and children and brothers and sisters and your own life is also the same Jesus who said to love your enemy and to love your neighbor. So what's he saying here? What he's saying is that your love for Jesus, your love for God, your devotion to God must be such that when compared to that love, your love for your spouse or your child or your friends or yourself pales in comparison. It looks like hate in comparison. Jesus is saying, first of all, that he must have priority over all of your relationships. That's a claim that Jesus makes upon your life and my life. I must have priority. Jesus must have priority over all of our relationships. And here's the little secret I'll cheat ahead for you. That you will not achieve health in any of those relationships. Father, mother, uh, husband, wife, brother, sister, child. Even to yourself, you will not achieve health in any of those relationships until Jesus is Lord. Because until he is Lord, you'll be trying to turn every single one of those relationships your children, your spouse, your parents, your brothers and sisters, everyone around you, you'll be trying to turn each of those relationships into something that you can get out of. You can get what you want out of it rather than being able to serve them and love them selflessly because Jesus is your Lord. 
Jesus says, I must have priority over all your relationships. And then he says, I must have priority over all of your life goals, dreams, and plans. Look at verses 27 through 30. Then he says, whoever does not bear his own cross. Now, to say bear his own cross, we hear that as like a Christian sounding thing. But for Jesus to say, who does not bear his own cross, would be like saying to us, who does not bring his own hangsman's noose with him. Who does not bring his own electric chair with him. He who does not follow me, prepared, not theoretically to die, but prepared to die, cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish Jesus is saying, I must have priority over all of your life goals, over all of your dreams, and over all of your plans. Do you consider Jesus first when you're thinking about what you're going to do with your life? When you think about what you're going to do, decisions that you make, not just big decisions, but even the small decisions. Jesus says, I must have priority above all of those things. Um, he must have priority over the way that we vote. He must have priority over the way that we dress. He must have priority over the way that we uh, entertain ourselves, the way we interact with the people around us. He must have priority over all of our life goals, over all of our dreams, and over all of our plans. Then lastly, in verses 31 through 33, he says, Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether with 10,000 he's able to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. So this king is facing an army that is twice as big as he is. And this army is advancing upon him. It's not a choice of whether I'm going to go out to war. This army is advancing upon me. And he has to sit down and say, all right, do I have a plan where I can beat them with 10,000 people? We're outmanned and outgunned. Do I have a plan that we can do this? And if I don't, then I'm going to contact the other king and say, hey, give me some sort of terms of peace. Because I'd rather come to some sort of truce than to lose. So therefore, if any of you does not renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus says he must have priority over all of your possessions. Here's the truth. If you're going to follow Jesus, it doesn't just theoretically cost your life. It literally costs your life. You will have to give him priority over all your relationships, your life goals, dreams, plans, and ambitions, and over all of your possessions. When I decide what I'm going to do with what I own, or I think I own, or what I want to own, or what I want to own, or where I'm trying to get myself, he must have priority over all that. And there is no middle ground. There's no nice and neat way to follow Jesus. There's no flirtatious way to follow Jesus. There's no way to keep him as a, 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 a number you dial late at night when things are rough kind of relationship with Jesus. To follow him and maintain your own rule is not to follow him at all. But to follow him is to forsake your own rule, your own reign, your own demands. 
Jesus demands absolute priority over everything that we have, over everything that we think, and over everything that we do. Now, that's a lot. That's kind of heavy, right? Randy, I thought you said you were going to be happy today because Clemson won. But here's the truth, another truth. What does it, what does it really cost us to renounce the rubbish of a trash heap of a kingdom that we call our life. To forsake that and renounce that for the joy and everlasting pleasure that is found in the face of Jesus Christ. Every other siren song that you and I hear saying, no, happiness is found here. Happiness is found here if people will just do what you want them to do is simply a siren song that will lead us into the rocks. It is only at his right hand. It is only under his rule and reign that true joy is found. And yet, and yet, the pain of death that you and I feel when we die to our own rule is incredibly painful. When we die to our own plans and our own dreams, we die to doing things the way that we want to do them without consulting Jesus. It is painful. If you've ever tried to change yourself, you've experienced that, that pain. It's difficult. You can't, it's insurmountable on your own. You can't change yourself from the inside out. You can change yourself from the outside in, but it only goes so far. It's only a veneer to a certain point. Yet how can we do this? Jesus is saying, if you're going to be my disciple, then you're going to enter the narrow door. You're going to come into my kingdom and my rule and reign. I'm going to have priority over all these things. And yet it feels like death to us when we hear the call. How can, we find, how can that be possible? Well, here's how it's possible. Jesus is the king. And he's the kingdom. To get him is to get the kingdom of joy and peace. If you get him, you have everything even though you have nothing else. He tells a story, other times he says, hey, if you were walking along and you found a field and there was a treasure buried in the field or you're walking through a field and you found like, hey, there's oil in this field and it didn't belong to you, you would sell everything that you had in order to buy that field because you know what I, giving up what little bit I have to gain this is worth everything and more. I, you, would go, you would go to, you would laugh all the way as people around you are wondering, why are they liquidating all their assets and buying this stupid field? You would be laughing all the way to the bank. And that's what it means to find the kingdom of God in Christ. He's the king and to get him is to get everything. But then here's also the truth that Jesus himself is the door. He says, if any man would come, he must come through me. Jesus is the invitation. The fact that he came for you and for me, he didn't leave us in the mess that we're in. He came to us at great cost to himself is the invitation. He's the door that we have to enter through. To, for him to be Lord is the way we enter into the kingdom. He's the key that opens the door. And he's the one that opens the door and pulls us through it himself. Jesus is the king. He's the door. 
but then he's also the cost itself. If anyone, therefore, if any of you does not renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. It will cost everything that you have to follow him, but he gave everything that he had so that you could. No greater love has any man than this, what? That he lays down his life for his friends. He's the king, the kingdom. He's the door that we enter through, and he's the cost that's been paid that we could do that. It'd be too painful to follow Christ and to give him all of our life, give up our rule and reign to him. It would be too painful for it to actually happen. Ask the Jews in the Old Testament. They had a perfect law, and they could not, would not follow it because they could not die to themselves. Jesus gives us a way to die to ourselves because he died for us. We can freely reject all for the kingdom because he's the king and he's paid for it for us. And man, isn't that a man, a king, a leader that's worth following? Who not only is the way in, but has paid for the cost for us to enter itself. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing together in response to the word. Then after we sing, Doug's going to come up and lead us in communion where we will remember, we will remember the cost that Jesus paid for us and the what we get in return in giving up our life to him, that we get him, we get the kingdom, we get joy forevermore. Man, that's something to celebrate this morning. If you're not a believer this morning, I pray that you would be one. I pray that you would find me or Dale or someone back in the prayer area to pray with you and help lead you to make Jesus the Lord of your life. And if you are a believer and you've been struggling, you've been believing that there is joy found other places, I pray that as we sing and as we take communion together that you would avail yourself of that opportunity to uh, be refreshed and renewed in that commitment. And if you need, find somebody beside you in the prayer. Again, Dale or myself would be glad to pray with you in that process. Father, I pray that you would uh, renew us this morning. God, that you would help us to uh, remember that to follow you means to give up everything, but that it's sacrificing nothing. That to follow you is to accept you as Lord, as king over everything, over every part of my life. But God, that joy and peace is found there. Help us to be a people who are known or marked by sacrificing discipleship to Jesus, but people who are laughing all the way to the bank because we know that we found a joy and a peace that will never fade. And it's in your son's Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.